like to ask you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I asked Ben if we could sing that song uh, before the message, in part because I think it fits the conference theme, but also the text this morning, and and I just love that song. So get to ask once in a while for the ones you, you really enjoy uh, being challenged by the truth of it. I'm sure some of you are familiar, or if not all of you, with the second law of thermodynamics, which honestly is much more complicated than sometimes we talk about it. You try and really understand it, and I'm like, I'm out. It's way too deep. But the basic concept you're familiar with of entropy, that things tend to move from order to disorder or left to themselves. Uh, they actually move toward disintegration. And, and that's just the result of the fall and curse. Uh, but I think there is something of a parallel in, in spiritual things, that uh, spiritual progress doesn't happen without intention and effort. Uh, to use language of our conference, being focused and faithful. You're not going to coast toward Christ-likeness. Your church is not going to slide toward health. It's going to require a commitment to the resources that God has provided and a dependence on the Lord of the church to work through it. It's not an automatic, right? I, I do think we could say a spiritual growth is inevitable, but not automatic because he who began a good work and he will continue it until the day of Christ. But we have a responsible participation in it, and we have a responsibility as shepherds to lead and to guard and to be careful, uh, because we can all probably offer up um, historical examples, but also probably even personal examples of once faithful churches that no longer are, or once uh, faithful ministries that, that were used by the Lord who turned from their original purpose or direction. And it's, um, I mean, you can almost become pessimistic, right? That things never outlast a first or second generation. Uh, I don't think we should, uh, especially if we're younger, since that means we might be the ones that take it the wrong way. Uh, we should just recognize that, though that the tendency toward decline and drift is something that is real and the New Testament acknowledged. Right? Paul's last letter here, I think, is written to try to push back against that. He's urging Timothy about having a faithful gospel ministry, and he is emphasizing both the priority of that and the pattern for it that if Timothy is going to finish the course, just like Paul is about to, then there's a certain priority that has to be given to it. There's a certain pattern it must follow because the word of God has established that. And so we can look to it for answers. Uh, the first part of the book, Timothy has been urged to, to be willing to endure hardship or suffer really 
after the opening, uh, 1.8 all the way up to 2.13 really is, is talking about that issue of hardship or enduring it or suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now Paul turns in the passage we're going to be looking at and begins to address more directly the challenge to the health of the church in the false teachers and false teaching. He's gonna, he's going to actually help equip Timothy to stand against that so that he himself can have a kind of ministry that's approved by God and of which he is unashamed. Right. And you know the language I'm using from from the Awana verse, right? I mean, if you grew up going to Awana, you you knew that was the, you know, that was the verse you quoted every week that you would you would uh, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. It's still buried in there in the Elizabethan English for me. All right. the The point is that that Timothy is in a uh, Paul is in a real way answering the question that I think should be important for all of us. How can we have a ministry which is approved by God and of which we will be unashamed at the day of judgment? And, and in uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, Paul answers that question uh, wrapped around uh, four or five qualities, four of which come directly in the form of imperatives, and the fifth comes as a participle that actually has imperatival force. So I'm going to state them in a way that has to do with commands for us if we're going to have an approved ministry. And I got really nervous uh, halfway through uh, Carrie's message last night when he started bouncing around my passage for this morning. So thankfully, he was just pointing out a couple of things and not doing the whole deal because I was going to be scrambling to to come up with something different for this morning. So we're going we're gonna to zero in on these verses. Let me read, please, chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Verse 14, the first part of the verse, here's what I would suggest Paul is saying to us. The first quality of an approved ministry is that you must constantly teach fundamental gospel truths. You must constantly teach fundamental gospel truths. I'm taking the word constantly from the word remind them of these things, right? So if you're reminding people of something, it's because you're regularly doing it. And, and the task of a pastor is not to be always introducing the new and novel, but actually to be rehearsing 
the, the essential, the fundamental, to remind people of the foundations of the faith. And I'm taking this fundamental as these things in the text, which if you read through the pastoral epistles, you'll find Paul talking about these things a lot. And, and he's, it's almost using it as like his summary statement for the truth that's been entrusted. There, these are the things that God gave us. And so remind them of these things, right? And, and he's just rehearsed a little bit of that, uh, talking about his gospel in, in verse eight, right? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. So when he says, remind them of these things, it's flowing out of that context. It's, it's parallel to the idea of retain the standard of sound words. There are, there is a body of truth that's been delivered to us, and our job is to continually remind God's people of those things, to hold them in front of their minds, and not to be, um, not to be chased away from the basics and fundamentals of God's truth because we always want to be interesting or creative. Right. And, and, and we need to recognize that. And, and you know that. I mean, every, every pastor has probably used the joke about Paul, you know, Paul and Timothy or Paul and Peter saying, you know, to write the same things to you is not burdensome. You know, so we, we go, we blame it on Paul and Peter, right? That's what they did. That's what we're supposed to do. And, and actually we can say it sort of jokingly because we're trying to get people to understand it, but it's actually the truth. Right? We're, we're just supposed to keep reminding people of the basic realities of what God has done for us through Christ. And when I say basic, don't think shallow, right? Think constituent elements. How's that? Right? The things that make Christianity Christianity. The things that are, are the, the, the essence and heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ where the word of God has spoken to those things and, and we just, we need to constantly remind people of those truths because if we don't, we will drift from them, right? It's the, it's the pattern. Uh, you know, I, I, this isn't the exact way that, that uh, Carson says it, so I'm putting my spin on it, right? But the first generation advocates for the truth. The second generation assumes those truths the third generation abandons them, right? Because you, you, you're not actually holding tight to assumptions. And pretty soon you just like start to walk away from them. And what we have to constantly be coming, calling people back to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that, that we need to rehearse those things because doctrinal novelty is one of the devil's most effective tools to distract and damage the church. And it feeds pride, right? I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I, I think in, you know, in general terms, the, the people who I think have inflicted the most damage on the church are the people who have all of a sudden come up with the new insight that everybody missed. Right, and I mean, I'm, I mean, thank, God's been very kind to us, right? I've been here, Lord willing, if I if, if I make it to February, uh, it'll be 35 years, and my 
pastor I grew up under was here for 40 years. So there's just been 75 years of, of uh, two primary preaching and teaching uh, voices. And God's been very kind to our church to give us great measures of unity and not uh, not be filled with, certainly in the 35 years that I've been here. I mean, I, there were bumps along the way for everybody, right? But the, the couple of times where we've had tensions, right, have been where someone started to have their little spin on things, right? They're, they're teaching something that, that, that is really a novelty and honestly feeding the ego of the person who has the insight. And I remember sitting one time at a, at a meal and they're talking about a Sunday. It was the first, actually, like the light bulb went on with me because I'm sitting there with them and they're talking about the Sunday school lesson and person said, you know, I sit around looking across the class and I'm thinking, boy, look at the looks on everybody's face. This is so deep, they can't get it. And I'm sitting there going, no, it means he was teaching a bunch of fog. Right? And, I, and all of a sudden I figured out where the stuff was coming from that was starting to circulate around in our church, sort of novel, weird take on justification and sanctification. And, and, and it, was, it, was, it was driven by wanting to be the unique teacher and it's driven by people wanting to claim they have some special insight into things that other people don't have. Well, if you were more mature, you'd understand this, right? And it's like, no, it was just a bunch of gobbledygook. And, and, and if, it's, if it's incomprehensible because it's never been seen before and it's outside the boundaries of what the, the word clearly declares, then, then we've, you know, we, need to, we need to recognize it's not good. That's not healthy. Right? That's the way cults form. So Paul says, keep, keep to, the, keep to the, the stuff that you've received, right? You received it from me and trust it. The, the things you've heard from me. Remind them of these things, right? Stick to that and don't turn away from it. Clarity is really important. And, and there's not something to be uh, gained in ambiguity. Right, the the test, uh, the test of your preaching in many ways is how clear you are with the truth of God. So we must constantly teach fundamental gospel truths. Look at the second part of verse fourteen. Charge them, solemnly charge them in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Here's the second quality: you must challenge the, those who teach useless and ruinous things. You must challenge those who teach useless and ruinous things, right? It's, it's charge them not to wrangle about words. So Paul's not actually saying, Timothy, don't wrangle about words. He's saying, you need to charge those who are, right? Go, go after that. Be willing to confront and deal with those. Clearly, it presupposes that Timothy himself wouldn't be doing it, right? But, but the goal is as a, as a shepherd and a leader in, in the assembly of God's people, you must be ready to challenge those who teach 
this kind of useless, ruinous stuff. The responsibility that he states here is solemnly charge them, give them a warning that highlights their accountability to God. He's witness to it, right? That's charge them in the presence of God is actually to help this person see that what they're doing is actually something for which they will give an account to God. And he is witness to their their, uh, wrangling about words, right? So bring God into the equation, which is not only the right thing to do, it's actually probably the most effective way to do it as a shepherd because you're not really confronting them and saying, hey, you're contradicting me. Get in line with what I teach. You're actually saying, listen, this is, this is God's authority through his word. You can't depart from that. You can't, you can't be causing disruption about it. The, the idea here about not to wrangle, Paul actually uh, uses a word that's only used this time in the New Testament. It, it really means something like word battles or word fights. Um, you know, I, I, here's, I think we have to think about this, right? Because I don't think it can mean don't argue about words. Right, I think it has to mean something uh, slightly different than that because uh, the scriptures actually place a good bit of emphasis on words, even at times making distinctions between singulars and plurals. Right in Galatians, when when uh, Abraham Abraham's seed, Paul says, notice he said seed and not seeds. Right, so so the, this wouldn't be saying, don't argue about words. Just get big ideas or concepts, or you know, just sort of have the, you know, that kind of thing. What I think he's actually doing, especially since he said, as we saw yesterday in one thirteen, he says, retain the standard of sound words. I think he's actually talking about people who are arguing against and away from the word. Right, they're actually coming along and and trying to to mangle and twist and fight over the words that have been entrusted. Right, don't don't let somebody wrangle the words that you've been given and and turn away from them. And and that's that's the effort that's going on. And 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 this is. Uh, you know, I, I think we see it happen. I was, I was just going to use, I'll use one illustration, right, of how people can have a certain impression of being committed to the word while actually subverting it, right? I, uh, there's an article arguing for gender spectrum, right? And so here's the, here's the word game. Uh, the word for earth has the same root as the word for Adam. So it doesn't really mean man. It simply means earth creature. And then the woman establishes the other pole of the spectrum, 
So you don't have really this binary of two genders. You actually have among earth creatures two spectrums established between male and female. And just like the Bible doesn't say God made day or night, he made day and night, there's a spectrum between them. I mean, and, and really literally trying to argue as if the text is saying that garbage. Right? That is completely twisting what's going on with the words in order to actually dump into the text the view of the people. Right? That's, I think, the thing that Paul would be saying. Wait a minute. You've just now taken concepts that are not in the text, are importing them to words in order to lead people away from. You're creating fights over words that are meaningful and established that we're supposed to retain and hold, and you're trying to take them out of our grip, right? Substitute false meanings for them to, to, to change the thing, and, and we can't allow that. Why? The reason he says it's useless and it leads to destruction. It's, it's useless, it's unprofitable, but it's not just that it's profitless, it's actually destructive. Right? So they're not just empty words, they're actually poisonous words that end up being substituted. And this is the subtle danger of false teaching. It masquerades as enlightened while actually bringing darkness to the mind and soul. Right? Yeah, I mean, we know this, right? Uh, uh, a, a position that's 180 degrees from the truth is sort of readily spotted. It's when they can angle in on it. They can, they can insert error into it in a way that shifts it away. That's the wrangling that's going on. That's the... That's the problem that's happening. And we need to, we need to guard ourselves against that because there's all kinds of very sophisticated ways to compromise God's truth in our day. And, uh, because, uh, we have a kind of pseudo humility, right? Remember the old Chesterton quote? We're supposed to be humble about ourselves, not about the truth. So, so we've actually turned into a world where if somebody can make even a remotely plausible argument as a possible interpretation, we have to leave room for it, right? And we have to, we have to be gracious. We have to be open about it. And, and that's not the pattern Paul is arguing for. When people are twisting the word, when they're trying to substitute Right? They try to add to it or subtract from it or distort it. Then we're supposed to challenge that, not, not accommodate that. Now look at verse 15, third quality. You must commit to carefully handling God's truth. He, he starts by highlighting, I think, a godly ambition here. Present yourself to God, approved, not ashamed. It's a uh, the word present, I think, is pointing toward uh, the assessment that we'll face before God. Uh, you know, you you need to, you know, you, you need to show up at the courtroom. You need to present your case. 
And in this situation, he's saying, here's what your ambition ought to be, that you would be able to present yourself to God as having been uh, a, an approved workman who carefully handles the word of God. Approved means to pass the test. Not ashamed, I think probably in its, in its, uh, its, in its most like strong sense would be not exposed as a false teacher because that's what he's dealing with, right? If all of a sudden, all of a sudden when you stand before God, remember the charge is before in the presence of God, if, if you actually stand before God and you've been someone who's been wrangling the word, has, has subverted it, that, that you're going to be exposed as someone other than a true teacher of the word, right? I, I think that's probably more likely than uh, you're just going to be sort of a little bit red-faced because you, you, know, you didn't work hard enough, right? It's, it's actually, you know, you're you're going to be exposed as someone who was not actually approved by God and was not doing what God said. And hopefully our theology uh, has room for that, right? Because Matthew 7 says there's people who stand before the Lord and say, you know, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons? Do many miracles? And he'll, he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. So, uh, ministerial service and even apparent ministerial success are not actually the thing that ultimately leads to that approval. This is, this is a text calling us to our faithfulness to the word and, and carefulness with it as being the indication of us being an approved workman. Right? And I, um, I mean, I've, I haven't said this for years, right? I say, I'm like, I remember back, it, probably in the nineties, this was a, this like, I was young and more passionate about trying to purge out all of the ignorance from the circles within which I ran. So I, I would do it and I'd, and I'd use a phrase that we have been good at elevating builders and battlers, but not Bible expositors. Right? If someone got a big ministry, lift them up. Or someone, you know, went to battle about stuff or was, a, you know, they were the kind of fighting fundy that, that, you know, was right out on the edge all the time. Those, those guys got elevated. But the guy who was just faithfully preaching the word, handling it correctly, shepherding according to the word, uh, that guy could just like, yeah, okay. And that's why sometimes I go to conferences. I'm like, seriously, you guys are amening this? I mean, I, I remember being at a, a, a conference and the guy was preaching on Gideon and it literally went, uh, Gideon was down in the wine press threshing the wheat because of the enemy. Wheat is what you get bread from. Bread's a symbol for God's word. Gideon was ready for the battle because he was daily feeding God's word. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like you talk about handling crookedly God's word. Yet it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, give me a break. Someone preaching like that, if that's a pattern, they ought to just take a seat. 
They ought to be under the teaching of God's word, not doing the teaching of God's word. Right? The, the fact is that we have a standard set for us by God that will receive his approval and will allow us to be unashamed. And that is we are to handle accurately the word of truth. That's what verse 15 says, right? We have, we have a diligent action. We are working hard, be diligent about this to handle accurately God's word. And, uh, you know, you know, probably the word here, it's the idea, sort of the idea of a, uh, cut something straight. The basic, I think, is simply just do it correctly, right? I don't, I don't think you want to make too much of like the, the, the illustration is good, but the point is basically do it right, <laughs> right? And and I and I I think the test is always right. I mean, in my in my mind, what I try to think and what I try to teach guys is, is when you finish handling a passage envision, like in this case, the Apostle Paul sitting right there and you finish the service and you come down and sit next to Paul and hopefully Paul would say, that's exactly what I said. That That is what I was trying to communicate. Because sitting next to Paul is the Lord. Because it's actually the Lord's word. right? And someday I'm going to stand before the Lord and it's going to be the Lord saying, hey, you handled my word accurately that I want to hear. Right? It's not a bunch of people going, oh, that's a great sermon. I mean, because like I said, I mean, you know, the guy gave the invitation about revival. And I'm, I'm standing there. I mean, actually, it was funny because Dr. McCune and I, are, Dr. McCune, who used to teach theology for us, was like in the row behind me, in front of me. And like, like it, how do you, how do you, I mean, I, I can tell you, I didn't go forward, so I guess I could answer the, this question. But when someone says, you know, do you love Jesus? Do you want to see revival? Da, 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 you know, come forward. But it was ostensibly tied to a passage that had just been abused. And there's a little bit of a stubbornness in me. It's like, I am not going to give any indication that you actually handled God's word correctly. Right? You, you just misrepresented my God. You said something that he didn't say. I mean, think about it. If, if you go out and all of a sudden someone says, hey, so-and-so told me you said X. You go, whoa, I, I never said that. You'd say about that person what? At the low level, you'd say they're dead wrong. At the probably truthful level, you'd say they're lying. I mean, you realize that when we talk about handling God's word? If I say God said something he didn't say, am I not misrepresenting God? I mean, it's not an insignificant thing. It's it's deeply important for our task that when we stand up on behalf of God to tell people the very utterances of God, that we are saying what God said. And if we're not completely sure about it, then we should say, I, I'm, I'm inclined to think it means this, and here's why. Right? But we point them to, 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 to check it out. We need to do that. We need to recognize that, that, we are after the message 
that God has put in his word for us. And it's actually found in the words and it's found in the words as they are arranged, right? So the, the Bible's not just a bag of words and I go grab a word out and I make it mean whatever, but that word sits in relationship to other words. So they, they create ideas and those ideas then are arranged in such a way that they make an argument or a case. So I'm supposed to spend time understanding what God said and what he communicated. And he said it inside the context of everything else he said. So I have to make certain that I'm not pursuing an interpretation that is actually contrary to other things that he has said. Right At any point when I'm studying a text of Scripture, there, there is theology involved that exercises some measure of control over my understanding of the text. And this text makes some contribution to my theology. Right? And, and we can, I mean, I, I don't, I don't like break out in hives over the phrase biblicist, but if somebody uses that to try and avoid the responsibility of theology, then they're going the wrong direction. Right? I mean, I, I always illustrate it this way. I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 2 says there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. If that is the only text I have, I will come to the conclusion that Jesus is not God. He's a man. Right? If that's the only text, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. But it's not the only text that I have. I have a lot of other texts that have established a theological understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. And so when I understand that text, I have to understand it in relationship to that theology. That theology exercises a control over my interpretation of that text. That's handling it accurately. Right? But it also makes a contribution to my theology because when I start to, for instance, wrestle with the, the theological concept of mediatorial work, this text tells me there's one mediator between God and men. So everyone who wants to come along and tell me that Mary's a, a co-mediator, mediatrix or whatever, or wants to come along and say all that stuff, I can say, no, 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 here's what the text of Scripture says. Right, The text of Scripture says there's just one mediator. And there are other texts that support that as well, right? No one goes to the Father except through me. So, so here's the point is, if I'm going to handle accurately the Word of God, I have to be in the Word, understanding what the words mean, how they're used in specific arrangement, and then set it within the context of what the rest of the Bible teaches. If I'm just skimming across the Bible because something caught my attention and then I'm opining on it, I'm not, I'm not going to be handling the word of God correctly. Right? And, and it, it can be like that. When I was a younger man, there was a famous sermon called Duty. And it was based from Ecclesiastes. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. 
And, and here's the way this kind of not handling the word accurately happens. That text is actually very clear about what the duty is, right? Here's the whole duty, fear God and keep his commandments. So if you're going to preach a sermon, it would be the duty of humans to fear God and keep his commandments. But all of a sudden it becomes a sermon on, so if you have a duty, make sure you fulfill that duty. Right? It becomes a sermon about duty, not about the text. Right, So all kinds of speech and exhortation and high motivation about duty, 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 duty. Ironically, since it was from the King James, if you ever look at the King James, the word duty is in italics, <laughs> right? So the King James translators had put it in to help you understand what it means, not because the word duty is actually there. So not only is it not from the text, it's not even about the text. Now, here's what I'd say, is sometimes that stuff can be interesting, it can be motivating, but it's not going to pass the test. Right? I mean, you could fill an auditorium with people who want to hear it, but someday when you present yourself to God, it won't be as an approved workman who's accurately handling the word of God. So don't get sucked into that elusive, false dream of being an orator that captures the attention of everybody rather than an expositor whose faithfulness must be to the text of Scripture. Look, if you would now, at verse 16 to, verses 16 to 18, there's a fourth quality there, and that is you must, you must contain the spread of false teaching by separation from it and those who teach it. He says, avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. That's why I say, False teaching, right? Worldly and empty chatter, but also false teachers. He mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus. So it's not just enough to say, well, we won't accept that teaching, but tolerate the people who are teaching it. It needs to be a separation from both of them. The reasons he gives in the text is because its character is worldly and empty chatter. It's worldly is probably mean here godless, profane, unholy, opposed to God. Uh, and again, just like I think that gender spectrum thing, I picked sort of like, hopefully, I mean, I, I'm assuming nobody disagrees with that one, right? But I think there are lots of ways in which ideas that come from a worldview, which is systematically opposed to God, but is accepted in our culture, makes its way in among believing people so that it subtly shifts and changes the way we understand theology and ministry and, and life, right? We, uh, I mean, the general, I'd say it is that basically all of life in our world, our culture has been psychologized so it's almost the framework from which everybody looks at everything. And so now they go to the Bible and they're reading things into the Bible, 
right, that are really the representative of worldly thinking, okay, and, and, and shaping it according to pagan systems of thought, right? People whose fundamental assumptions are radically contrary to the authority of God. And just simply at the issue of what is wrong with people, right? If you start with, well, they're basically good, but something has happened to them from outside. You, that's a fundamentally different, fundamentally different worldview than the scriptures. And every remedy that you're going to prescribe for health is going to be shaped by that. You, you are now undercutting biblical truth by giving priority to viewpoints which actually fundamentally reject the spiritual truth of God's word because the natural man cannot know the things of God. He considers them foolishness, right? So when you try to integrate those, it's, it's inevitably the Bible that surrenders ground. Right? It's the Bible that has to be conformed to the latest theory that we've developed from, from worldly philosophies. God is always the one that has to compromise when you put those kinds of systems together. And, and we, can't, we can't let that happen because it's worthless. It's empty babble, right? That's what he, he describes here, worldly and empty chatter. And it's corrupting influence. The text says, it leads to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. The, the, the teachings that are being advanced actually promote ungodliness and produce more and more of it, like a disease that spreads. False teaching eats away at the healthy tissue, bringing death. That's why sometimes, and I think, I think we can overplay it, right? I mean, you know, we love, we love to warn about slippery slopes and all those things, and, and, and we ought to, right? But sometimes people, you know, people have turned the slippery slope into like a, you know, a, 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 a flat desert before the problem, right? So they keep pushing it farther and farther back. But the fact is that error is, it is in fact like a stalking horse often, right? The, the people who want to subvert the truth of God don't start with the most essential ones. They start with sort of leading edge ones. Right? They, they start to push in and you can start to pull the threads of them. That's why, uh, you know, that's why the deconstructionist movement has a name like deconstruction. <laughs> right? They didn't just drop a nuclear bomb on the truth. They started pulling it down board by board and, and inevitably going to things like, well, you know, if, if this, you know, if, if the Bible is antiquated or culturally conditioned in its views about the relationships between men and women, right, then where else is it antiquated and culturally conditioned? Right, so you you start with well, we're we're just radically radically anti patriarchy and male chauvinism, and then you start moving your way across 
if, if God's word is not authoritative about the order in the church and home, then where else isn't it authoritative? And actually, when you really come down to it, the Bible does really say these things. And if these things aren't true, then can we really affirm that the Bible is, is inerrant? And hey, maybe inerrancy was only constructed just so people could get to their twisted interpretation. I mean, I, I could hand you the books that are saying that, that are getting promoted by evangelicals, right? Because that's the way false teaching works. It seeps into the system. It spreads like gangrene. So we have to have our eyes clearly set to the fact that this danger is real and it's prevalent because look at what it does. The third reason he gives for us for doing this, right? It's character, it's corruption, it's consequence. Look at the end of verse 18, they upset the faith of some. And don't hear upset like as they get a little bothered by it, right? Think think, uh, upset like as in knocked over. Because the warning is to sit, would sit inside of uh, what the scriptures would teach about the danger of, of falling away and the need of perseverance, right? False teaching fits in that because it's the thing that causes some people's profession to be upset, right? They turn away from the faith or like Romans 16 Paul says that they're supposed to identify and avoid false teachers because they think, think, teach things contrary to what they received that create obstacles or stumbling blocks for people. And in the book of Romans, you can trace what that stumbling block is. It's to stumble and fall away, right? The reason you must defend the faith against false teachers is because of the impact it has on the souls of people. You can't betray the souls of those entrusted to your care. So what's the responsibility he gives in it? And I think there's two things here. At the beginning, uh, at the at the beginning of it, that he says, avoid, right? You are to avoid worldly and empty chatter. And then he goes on to name people. So here's the way I would say. This separation works its way out. We are actually to separate from those who are teaching falsely and we're to speak out against it because that's what Paul does, right? And, and I think it needs to be both. Uh, and I, my simple way of talking about separation is you either withhold fellowship or we, you withdraw from fellowship, Right? If you're not in that fellowship yet, then you would withhold it from false teachers. If you find yourself in it and you can't remove them, then you need to withdraw. Right? I mean, I don't think it's as complex as we like to make it think. Right? You're just not supposed to be unequally yoked together, have no fellowship with light and darkness. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're asked to join in fellowship with people who are teaching things that are false teaching, then you withhold it. And if you find yourself in that relationship and you can't 
remove it, then you must withdraw from it. And, and uh, certainly at the base level, right, you would say you can't be funding it <laughs> because Paul says that when you actually fund something, you become a worker with them in it. Right? So when your money is going to subsidize the salary of false teachers, you're a co-worker with them. So you need to withdraw from that if you really are serious about the defense of the faith. And at times we have to speak out against it. Paul is not hesitant to name names in this particular session. Now, I, I, I will... I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it with any kind of uh, hesitation. I will say it with the warning that some people, I mean, I, so I grew up in this, I, my family came to know the Lord when I was an eight-year-old boy through the ministry of this church, right? So I grew up here. Uh, Dr. Rice, my predecessor, had a PhD in New Testament from Grace in Winona Lake, um, taught the Bible. He was a Bible preacher, Bible teacher, Right. Very, very conservative on ecclesiastical issues, right? I, when I came back on staff, I wanted to have a friend of mine come and speak at something, and he was at a church, and and Doctor, I said we will never have anybody from that church speak here. And I'm like, oh, and and then I found out about you know actually he had written some people and said, hey, you shouldn't be having you know he was very conservative, but I honestly don't remember him saying very many people's names from the pulpit. He just taught the truth. And I remember going, going away to college and sitting in Bible conference, and I honestly, I, I, I thought, these guys are preaching from the phone book. Right? I've heard more people's names than I've heard the text of Scripture. And I thought to myself, that can't be right. Right? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in any way trying to encourage you to be like, Every service, you're, you're picking somebody to, like, name and shame and attack. Not at all. But at some point, when someone is a well-known and their ministry actually impinges on yours, right? People are starting to hand around their books or talk about their stuff or send their links, then, then it might not be wisdom that's keeping you quiet. It, it might be fear of man. Sometimes we have to say the thing that needs to be said to expose the false teacher like Paul does here. Listen, this is what Hymenaeus and Philetus are doing. So avoid not just what they're teaching, but them, right? Because separatism is still a biblical responsibility, and we, shan't, we, we, we must not abandon it. Now look at verse 19. Here's the fifth quality. It says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So there's that fifth responsibility, abstain. So here's the way I would say it. You must remain confident in and consecrated to the Lord's saving purposes, right? You, in the face of false teaching, you must not become a pessimist, right? Look, what he, look at the contrast he established. Nevertheless, 
right? This false teaching is worldly, empty chatter. It's useless. It's unprofitable. It spreads like gangrene. But nevertheless, right, the Lord's work will go on. The firm foundation stands. The Lord knows those who are his. False teaching leads to ruin and does upset the faith of some, but don't be discouraged by this. God's work will prevail, right? And, and it's important to keep that because sometimes, sometimes we can actually start to doubt the grace of God in the lives of people, right? We, we, can, we can sometimes think, that everybody is actually turning away and everybody is rejecting the truth. You're the modern Elijah, right? You're the only one left. Everybody else is a compromiser, right? And sometimes it creeps in. A church, church is growing and reaching people with the gospel. And, and sometimes people go, they must be doing something wrong. Right? Because if, you know, if, if they're actually drawing people in, they must be compromising. And that's, that's, that's not healthy. It's not right. Christ is going to build his church. The foundation won't be destroyed. We can trust him to do that. We can find comfort in the fact that the Lord knows those who are his, which is probably an allusion to number 16. Remember Korah and company are saying, hey, we, you know, we want to be the, the people and, and Moses and Aaron and, and Moses says, the Lord knows who are his, right? So, so the reality of it is if your heart's ambition and your diligent effort is to be a workman approved to God, the Lord knows who are his. Right? You, can, you, can, you can have confidence in him. You can trust him. The Lord knows who are his. And the point, I think, is to highlight the work of God in saving and protecting his people. And he will do so by removing false teachers. He will take care of the problem. We can trust him. So what do we do? Here's the charge. Abstain from wickedness. The context, I think, is probably the teaching that is godless and produces godlessness. We can't divide creed and conduct as we've heard a couple of times now because they're intertwined, right? So we need to guard our heart and keep ourselves close to the Lord so that we can remain faithful in the midst of it. All right, the, God, the, the church is God's. So, so all expression of ministries must be accountable to God. This is a word directly to leadership, but it, it has a shaping influence for the people of God to understand what an approved ministry is. These kinds of things are what should matter to us. And, and popularity is not the standard. Pleasing people is not the standard. False teaching will always, to some degree, be popular because you're giving people what they want. It'll always be pleasing to the lost. Right. If you, you know, if you want to try to, 
I mean, you know, we've just seen the last few weeks ways in which people are going, well, you know, if you actually stand against homosexuality, we all know there's clobber passages and we sort of like hide those clobber passages. We need to, you know, welcome people to come and worship. And, and, and so essentially what's being negotiated there is God's truth, right? Essentially you're, you're surrendering the authority of God for the pleasure of people. And that's an unapproved kind of ministry. The rule of Christ is through his word. So our theme, focused and faithful. Here's what I'd suggest to you. This is how we be focused and faithful, right? You can't, you can't coast to the finish line, right? You have to be focused and faithful until you're finished. And here's though also what I'd say to you. Now you can tell, right? I'm not a runner. Um, I was built to run through things, not run, run long, long distances. Right. So, but there was a, a, a silly phase of my life where a guy on staff here, we, we started running and we'd, you know, do eight K's. We'd run that stuff. And first time I ever ran in one, I, you know, they have an Allen part eight K and hundreds of people there, gun sounds, everybody takes off. <laughs> right. And we're running and, and, and taking off. We get to the first mile marker and we ran that mile faster than I'd ever run a mile before. And you know what the thought in my mind was? Not, boy, I'm going to get a great time. It was, I'm going to die. <laughs> right? Because I did not pace myself. So by the time I'm hitting four miles, I'm feeling like my body's ready to, to like just die. All right? So... So here's what I would say for those of us who are older. If you're going to finish well, this is what God says. For those of you who are younger, if you're going to finish well, this is what God says. A passage like this is actually what sets the pace for your ministry. Right? And, and so don't, don't let on the front end frenetic energy push you past the boundaries of what this text teaches. And don't out on the back end of the race, forget about these responsibilities because you're just sort of tired of the fight, right? This is what God wants us to do to run the race in a way that will meet his approval. And, and at the end of that race is we're going to present ourselves to God. And we want to be there with the smile of God because we have been a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. We were focused and faithful. Let's pray. Lord, please help us uh, to keep, keep your word in the place of priority in our lives and to keep our ministries lined up with that word. We thank you that you have found us uh, faithful in trusting us with this. May we remain faithful and focused, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.